guys. Hello. Hello. Welcome. It is What You Should Be Watching, episode three with T and A. I said that wrong. I'm Aaron. I'm Tamara. There you go. And we also got... It's me, your main man, Borton. (laughs) (laughs) So today, our main topic is an analysis of the ensemble piece. If you don't know what that is, you should stick around. We will talk about it. Um, But we're going to start off with our coming soon... uh, why don't you start us off, Tamara? What's coming soon? The only thing I'm to? super ex- like I don't even know if I could say I'm super excited about anything really coming up, but I am rereading Jane Austen's Emma in anticipation of the upcoming Emma <laughs> that is coming out this year. It looks, um, it does, and look, it does cute. look really good, and I feel like there is a lot of progressive things you can do in this day and age with the story of Emma. Um, it looks very so pretty, like the it colors, does. It looks the, quite, like, it the looks set design great. is going to be really great. And that really is the best, it's the best Jane Austen novel, in my opinion, to do that to, because it's like, the issues going on yeah. in it are the least detrimental, so you're not taking away from plot and anything by making these really vivid backdrops or really great images. Yeah, I saw the trailer, So I, I do, I am super excited about it, and I think it's going to be really good. And I hope I can finish the book before you talk. March. It's in March. It's it in March. Oh, I don't remember when in March. I had this. I, I don't remember I either. I just remember saying that it comes out in March. Get your Google fingers I'm out. I'm sorry. I am. I had all this earlier <laughs> in my mind, and I thought, Shh, I remember it. This would be fine. <laughs> um, so, so, are our uh, forgotten classics, are they always going to be in line with Probably last Friday, guys. Literally yesterday, came out Friday. Oh, oh, <laughs> just happened. So well, we're too late. Yeah. But okay. I'm still gonna finish the. But book I'm sure watch. it will be. It'll be available. Oh yes, I'm hopefully. sure I'll be excited. Um, to answer your question, Borden. Yes. Uh, we're gonna try, but. Probably not. Yeah, eventually okay. we're just gonna have to accept that we're like, it's up. not always gonna work out that way. And so, yeah, sorry guys. It's not always going to work out that way. But we're going to do our best. Uh, do you have any other any other coming soon announcements, Tamara? No, I've been rather nostalgic this week. And I've stayed mostly in the past. So there may be other exciting things that have happened. But I have not, in fact, kept up to date on it. Wharton, <laughs> uh, yes. anything, anything, any announcements from you? Um... I had something, and uh, I, I'm not exactly sure what it was. Um, so. so there you go. There's that. Yeah, great. The guy that did uh, Ex Machina and Good Annihilation job. is coming out with a new miniseries that's supposed to be just as creepy and horrific as the others. I haven't seen that. I do like both of both of those movies a lot. They're both really good. But his miniseries. I don't know much about enough about it to know whether or not to be good, but it's supposed to be a essentially a commentary on like uh, security systems within homes. It's right up your alley. Okay. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> that. All over that. But it is not supposed to be happy like most of his things. So. Okay. But yeah, you can have that. Uh, all right. <laughs> it's called Devs. I don't know when it's gonna start, but it's his new project. I have. I've got two things. One is that. 
Parasite, which recently won Best Picture, has already been announced to be coming to the Criterion Collection. Mm -hmm. And that's my, my one per episode Criterion shout-out. You know what I learned today? What'd he you has learn to today? meet the president of South Korea and have dinner with him because of his accolades in making movies. That's oh, awesome. Well, I mean, it's a damn fine He movie. had a whole... I, I, absolutely I'm really excited. A whole to-do for him in South Korea. Korea. Do you think there's still a the theater the that is showing that? Maybe. It's already like, on DVD, though. Is it? Yeah. Oh, hell. I mean, wasn't it, go. like, didn't they have something to do with Netflix when they started it? So oh, it so, may be yeah, they're going to make, no, I think to it's Netflix. HBO, they're going to make a oh, miniseries. Okay. Um, because there's so much that, like, he had to cut out that he wants to, like, re remake the movie in, in English and as a miniseries that includes all the stuff he had to cut out. Okay, so he's going to do it himself, though? And yeah. It's going to basically... Okay. Yeah, no. It's going to have Tilda Swinton. That's cool. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so Parasite coming to the Criterion Collection. No set release date. Um, my other one, and this one I'm very excited for, is that Wes Anderson's new movie, The French Dispatch... It's coming out, currently scheduled for, I think, July 24th, and it's got, like, a hell of a cast, as always. Uh, Timothy Chalamet, I hope I'm saying that right, uh, Bill Murray, Benicio Del Toro, Tilda Swinton, Francis McDormand, Leia Seydoux, Owen Wilson, Jeffrey Wright, Adrian Brody, Sergey Ronan, Matthew Almerich, Jason Schwartzman, Henry Winkler... <laughs> Uh, Kate Winslet, Willem Dafoe, Christoph Waltz, Ed Norton, and Bob Balaban. Um, everybody. Everybody. Everybody in this one, yeah. And there was a quick, like, blurb of what it's about, and, uh, it does sound fun, and the, uh, I, uh, copied it down, it was, um, the staff of a European publication decides to publish a memorial edition highlighting the three best stories from the last decade. Uh, and they were... An artist sentenced to life imprisonment, a student riot, and a kidnapping resolved by a chef. Um, so yeah, that sounds... I'll be good. Yeah, I no. mean, it's Wes Anderson. It's, it's going to have black and white Delightful. in it. It's going to be his first work with black and white. I'm excited for I, that. I'm just excited for the, the team-up I've always dreamed of. Of the, the Fonz and Wes Anderson. <laughs> yeah, no. It was meant to happen. It was yeah, meant no. To happen. I actually really like Henry Winkler. I, I, I genuinely appreciate like Henry Winkler is probably one of my favorite characters in the rest he of the world. Yeah. Like well he's been obscure roles in many things that I absolutely yeah, love. He like, was the dad in holes. He was the principal that died the in the I think the holes. second screen movie or the first screen movie. Yeah. He was the principal. Yeah. Um like there's there's a lot of weird little things that people just forget Henry Winkler has done. But I'm sorry. Really Anytime I see him, I'm like the well. fonts, motherfuckers. But most people are like, hey, yeah. it's Henry fucking Wiggler. Yeah, no, it just makes me happy he's still working. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Um, so, I guess that's that's it for coming soon. So check those out when they come soon. Um, <laughs> didn't even mean to make that. I didn't even mean to make that happen, but it was good. A yeah, new tagline to the second. <laughs> when they come soon. Yeah, I suppose Emma um, came. So I guess we'll move on to what we're watching, and you know what? Just keep it Go with Tamara. Again. What are you watching, Tamara? What, am I watching? what have you watched recently? Regale us. Uh, last weekend, just for funsies, I watched Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which is just a good movie. It really is. It is. <laughs> it's, it's, a great fun. Time. it's fun. Um, 
watched Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. We watched a lot of old classics this week. Yeah. A great deal. We watched uh, Maltese Falcon. Oh shit! I do love Never a bad song. decision. No. Yes. Yeah, we rewatched, even though we really didn't need to, uh, Doctor Strange Love. Yeah, how I learned to what's the full stop, time? or how I learned to stop worrying. It, it's and been a long time since I've watched that. I could probably stand to rewatch <laughs> yeah, it. I can watch. I Peter love Sellers Doctor Strange Love. Pretend to argue with <laughs> Russians over the phone every. I can watch it on loop. Probably. The Russian like, premiere. <laughs> well, Dimitri, how do you think I feel? <laughs> well, what do you th what do you think I'm calling for? Well, of course well, I like to say hello. Of course I would. Like, oh my god. Not just, now, but anytime. But anytime. <laughs> but right now. Oh gosh. I mean, of course, the character of Doctor Strangelove himself is, is freaking hilarious. It's, it's like, so good all across the board. You think it's gonna be? I love boring, that. Just his whole front of his coat is just covered in cigarette ash because he never takes the cigarette out of his mouth, <laughs> mouth when he talks. They were just spilling yeah, over him all on his lap <laughs> But yeah, every so yeah, I really honestly we only had fun with movies. I never never had to push through a movie in these past couple of weeks. Watched a lot of just really fun ones. Um, and of course, uh, still all similarly matched the theme really. Which wasn't necessarily on purpose. That and Archer, which I feel like once again references enough movies that it can be mentioned. Fair, fine. Because <laughs> Archer Fair. is my happy place. Yeah, it is mine too. It, I you do can love just it. go on because it's so good. I've watched it so many times. Oh, yeah. I, I need to catch up on the last couple seasons. I have watched you. Archer oh. all the way through, you can like too watch many a couple times. episodes with us tonight before you go home. Because oh, <laughs> it's gonna. Happen. I mean, it's what we were gonna it's do. It's what anyway. we did. <laughs> But yeah, so yeah, that's probably all, um, other than a couple I'm going to talk about a little bit later, as well as ones I've already mentioned. That's probably all the movies I got to watch these past couple weeks. Still been a little busy. I had to do my dishes, guys, sorry. That was <laughs> an ordeal. A goddamn endeavor this week. <coughs> Alright, move on. Alright, board day. What you been all watching? Right. So, uh, I watched a great documentary the other night. But it's called uh, The Glamour and the Squalor. And it's about the first DJ. Like Somerset Mom novel. Like. Um, okay, there were things I liked about it, but it's about the DJ in Seattle that was the first to play Smells Like Teen Spirit. And he basically, from that point on, like became the, the gatekeeper of alt rock. Like, if he let him through, like, bands would make it big. And. Like, he just kind of had this crown Sorry, thrust so, like, upon him. The gate yeah. element of power between. Yeah, and he didn't mean to. Like it all. Well, that would suck later when you realize, whole... like, if you didn't just like something, you could maybe destroy someone's career. And yeah, that would no. Suck. Well, he also talks about the things like, uh, like the exploit, the whole exploitation of the scene is kind of his fault. Yeah. Like, but like unintentionally, um, he like created the system which yeah. they follow. That yeah, I bet that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, and I watched uh, some blessed soul put Danger Five on on YouTube, which uh, I Good love. God. Danger Five, it's the most bizarre shit. shit. I can't. If the audience doesn't know, Danger Five is an Australian show, and in the first season, World War Two happens in the nineteen sixties. It's like a spoof of the Thunderbirds. 
Um, and then the second season uh, it takes place in the 80s, and Hitler's back, and he's the coolest kid at an Il Illinois high school. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it. I just can't do it. I cannot get through Danger 5. It, it's, uh, God, it's so funny. It, it's so goddamn funny. Um... But uh, other than that, I rewatched uh, a movie called uh, A Futile and Stupid Gesture about the uh, co-creator of National Lampoon, Doug Kenny. It, Will Forte plays him in it. It's actually, it's pretty good. Um, it's entertaining. And uh, fucking rewatched Layer Cake, which is a great fucking movie. Just go watch that. I've never seen Layer Cake. Layer Cake is so It's one of those thing. that, like, I've always meant to see, and when, it just It's on happened. Netflix. Like, and I see it all the time, and it's always just one of those that, like, I can get to that any time. <laughs> It'll happen one day. And I know it will, but it's just... Has it yet? Just one of those that just hasn't happened I really happened love yet. that movie. I really love that movie. Can't help it. <laughs> okay, what, what did you watch this week, Aaron? I, uh, I watched 1917. Um, which was pretty good. Uh, it, yeah, you know, Parasite totally deserved Best Picture, and I'm so happy about that. But 1917 was good, and I'm, I'm glad that they just didn't, you know, because it seemed like the shoe in. Um, yeah. And I mean, it was filmed to look like all one shot, which was kind of cool. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like maybe, I don't know how many, like three to five, which is still very impressive. Oh, no, no, that, uh, but that's more of a, it, but they triumph managed, of tech, not a triumph of storytelling. Maybe? They managed like, to not make it feel gimmicky, and that's what I was truly impressed by. Because it's yeah. the kind of thing that like can feel like a, that can feel like a gimmick that gets old really quick, really easy. And they do it in such a way somehow to really manage to, I don't know. It's still very immersive, um, and it's kind of amazing that they managed to make a movie that's so visually beautiful about destruction. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's nothing... Like, you know, everything's shelled out and muddy and broken, and yet it's such a stunning movie. Um, but it is more about... You're right. It's more of a triumph of tech over... And, like, filmmaking itself over, like, story or... You know, it's kind of like Barry Lyndon. It's the prettiest movie ever fucking made, but it's pretty slow. Um, yeah. And, well, you know, 1917 is not slow because it's very, like, you know, there's World War One happened around happening around the characters at all times. Um, it's still, you know... I was, I mean, it, it is just visually so stunning. Um, whereas the story is kind of, like, literally, the story is about a guy having to deliver a letter. That is the story of 1917, and how very, very difficult it is to deliver this letter. Um, and it, it was quite difficult. It was yep. not a job that I would have wanted to have. <laughs> <laughs> No, can I just wait until I get sick in the trenches? I don't want to take the letter. <laughs> like, I'll definitely like, die if I take this letter. Um, that actually was not a spoiler. Uh, the Irishman. I also watched The Irishman. All, like, three and a half hours of it. It was good as fuck. And they really, really, really snubbed Joe Pesci by not giving him Best Supporting Actor. Because Joe Pesci... Who? 
Who won Brad it? Pitt. Brad Pitt for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Which is another Which movie I great. still haven't seen. And Brad Pitt Which was great. Great time. I just yeah. but really Brad Pitt feel just... like the moment was there for Joe Pesci, and obviously Brad Pitt's not going to be done. Brad Pitt anymore. was also yeah. kind of playing himself. Whereas, <laughs> like, like, that's the last movie Joe Pesci's ever going to make. And it's I the do, movie where he's playing himself. Yeah. And I do, I do hate. Whereas Joe Pesci, Joe Pesci was not really like Joe Pesci played yeah, a character he, unlike anything he's ever done before. The, one of the first and times he ever done it. I do hate fun. when they give people Oscars just because they're old and they're never gonna make another movie. But like yeah. he earned it. He oh was yeah, no. Fucking fantastic in that no, movie. No, and if that's the case, that's um, fine. And and also, I am kind of on board with the people winning Oscars just because they did, like the. <laughs> But I think it should be, like, if they're going to do it that way, they should split it up into two awards. Yeah. Because it's just, like, you know, Best <laughs> Supporting Actor, you were really good in this, here's your Oscar. Um, Pesci was, I mean, he was, like, soft-spoken and very, like, really? contemplative. Okay. And, like, I mean, totally unlike any other character he's ever played. And he was great. Um, I He played... Um, Bill Buffalino, the head of the Buffalino Crime Syndicate. And while I was looking up some stuff about that guy, uh, after I watched the movie, I did learn a kind of hilarious anecdote and uh, how Bill Buffalino was involved in uh, Coppola's The Godfather. Um, and strap in for a second. This requires stepping back. Guys, we should have made a chart... So everybody knows that fucking Frank Sinatra definitely had mob ties. And, like, back in the 50s, Frank Sinatra's career was kind of on the skids, and he was trying to get into acting, and he tried to get this role in From Here to Eternity, and it was tur- they turned him down. And so he went to his mob ties, and th- uh, we don't know exactly what happened, but he got that role. And yeah. so then, like, Mario Puzo wrote The Godfather, and the character of Johnny Fontaine uh, is about a... Italian crooner whose career is falling apart who's trying to get into the movies they turn him down he goes to his godfather you know then we got the horse's head in the producer's bed and next yeah. thing you know he gets his role yeah, everybody yeah. knew that that subplot was based on Frank Sinatra yeah so then Coppola's making the godfather and Al Mantino an actual Italian singer whose career is kind of fading goes to Coppola and is like I'm literally perfect for this role like, I am this guy, you should hire me to play Johnny Fontaine. Yeah. And he said, nah, sorry, I've already cast somebody. So Al Mant- Mantino went to his godfather. And you know who his godfather was? Bill fucking Buffalino, <laughs> the head of the Buffalino crime okay. syndicate. We don't know exactly what happened, but the guy who was cast as Johnny Fontaine dropped out. And Al Mantino got the role as Johnny Fontaine. So, fucking mobsterception, an actual Italian Holy crooner shit. with mob ties used mob intimidation to get a role in a movie to play an Italian crooner who uses mob, his mob ties to get a role in a movie based on true events of a previous Italian singer who used his mob ties to get a role in the movie. Gangsterception. Gangsterception. Yeah. No, oh, shit. And I just think but how did Coppola funny. not see that coming? He wasn't though. happy about it. How did Coppola um, not see well, that they coming? Well, basically though. only let him be in the movie to like not raise the ire of the mob. And yeah. also the guy who plays Luca Brasi, who gets strangled in the Britannia's like hideout, was an actual gangster who hung out with John Gotti. So okay, that was just intertwined with that movie, and they all kind of just had to deal with that. 
Um, and also, real quick, I watched Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of Harley Quinn. It was a lot of fun. It was, and that's definitely an ensemble piece. Okay. Um, although, not really, because they really shouldn't have entitled it Bird. Like, it should have been, and I think they actually did change the title. I think, I'm pretty sure they've rebranded it as Harley Quinn Birds of Prey. And that really is what it always should have been because the Birds of Prey do kind of take a backseat in the movie. Like, it's primarily about Harley Quinn. Um, they do change a lot of the characters, but it is like an alt-universe story, so they're kind of allowed to do that. Um, but they do them all really well. Like, uh, Sionis, the Black Mask, is played by Ewan McGregor, and he's so much fucking fun. And Victor Zaz was great, too. And they played them as a gay couple, and I loved it. Um, even though, yeah, it totally is queer coding, but you know what? I'm gay, and I'm allowed to enjoy my gay villains. I always have. That's why I like the villains best, because I grew up with Scar and Ursula and all these obviously queer villains, so of course I like them best. Um, but they are a lot of fun. Um, and they do... Uh, they do Renee Montoya really well, too. Like, I was really curious how they were going to work her into the story, and they, she's, like, fucking badass. <laughs> like, um, and yeah, I know Suicide Squad's garbage, and if you haven't seen this movie because Suicide Squad is garbage, you shouldn't let that not stop you. You shouldn't let that stop you from seeing this movie because, like... It's connect. It's in the same universe, but like they were really working hard to make sure that like they don't they fuck this one out. Yep. Yeah, okay. Um, well, that was what I was most worried about. Well, that, Suicide that, Squad like, was PG thirteen, and that was the biggest problem. Well, no, Suicide I mean, Squad was like of, really yeah. poorly written. That was I mean, not its like, biggest problem. That's a that's a big. That one, was though. like let's I mean, like, also let's, like Will let's, Smith, let's but. set up an excellent one third of a movie and then just totally. Well, trash and they the like, rest of it. Yeah. They cast Amanda Waller so perfectly, but like yes. everything else was and just oh like. And they cast Harley Quinn perfectly, but everything else uh, was just like. Uh, and I admit, I like Batfleck. Um, I do too. Batfleck like, was good. Batman vs. Superman would have been a great movie if they didn't resolve the fucking Batman for versus Superman part of the movie with, with fucking, fucking. Your mom's name is Martha too, bro? We're bros now, bro. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's it though those were those are my big three yeah um so that's what we've been watching listeners y'all watch yeah you can't tell us but um, you better watch something so I guess we'll move on to today in Hollywood history Saturday February 22nd right yeah. there was yeah it's Tamara's today, turn it wasn't wasn't really full Docket's not really full for today, okay. but our characters are important. All right. All right. A couple of cute little fun facts. Is on this day, we'll start with like closest to us. Uh, 2009, Heath Ledger posthumously won an Academy Award for Joker, which you know you don't have to celebrate. It happened, and it makes us feel old now because that was wild. That does make me feel kind of old now. Um, yeah. Yeah. And not, this is not exactly, it is movie related in a way, but not exactly. <laughs> but in 1968, on February 22nd, June Carter finally accepted Johnny Cash's uh, proposal of marriage on stage live. Oh, that's not movie related. It, but it's technically, still, they made a movie about it. They made a movie about it, yes. Count it. But, 
It does work. But isn't that a cute? Yeah. Yeah, All no. right. And uh, another fun fact is in 1935, uh, The Little Colonel premiered and as a little Shirley Temple movie. But it had a dance. The, the, the reason it's kind of famous is because they had the stairway dance number between her and uh, um, Bill Robinson. And it was, the first, uh, it was the first dance ever in Hollywood to show an interracial couple. And it was I between Shirley Temple. I really, really hate that that's how they described that. Uh, uh, <laughs> that doesn't. No, yeah, no, not. I don't. But it, they were a they were a dance partnership. I mean, I yeah, mean, that's as fair a, enough. Within that dance, um, but yeah, that's the first time they ever uh, in Hollywood showed on screen an interracial couple. <laughs> but um, moving on to birthdays, and this is where kind of the big one, my finale is. But uh, it's Drew Barrymore turned forty five. Um, Leia Sangala, who was the voice of a lot of our singing Disney princesses and also one of the first um, Fontines in Les Miserables, mm -hmm. turns 49. James Hong, who everyone should know because he's <laughs> that Asian guy's voice you've heard in every cartoon forever. He's Chinese specifically, but he's 91 today. And Cal um, McLaughlin turns 61 today. Oh! But the one I thought was the he's biggest deal. Yeah, he's got like totally white hair. He's oh, yeah. got dying it. And he's well, adorable. he still doesn't. I've seen he him recently. This, like, Instagram he Instagram out for well, Valentine's Day that was adorable for like all the single people and it was super cute. He was like, if y'all send me messages, I'll send you a Valentine's. He, he still doesn't look like he's 61 though. Because he's vibrant and full of joy. Yeah, no. He really is. But here's the big one. Here's my finale one. It was uh, Louise, and I'm probably going to say this wrong, or Luis Unuel. Oh. Birthday, was born on this day, and he is the pretty much the uh, you know one of the fathers of surrealism in film. Good friends with he did, Dali. Uh, yes, one of Dali's best friends did an Andalusian dog, or however you say that in French, which was. Un chien andalou. Yeah, un chien andalou. Um, and yeah, he was like my big deal for day, and I was like, That's gotta a good talk one. about Luis. He's he's cool. And that was pretty much everything on this day. So it wasn't too much, but a lot of, a lot of big characters. Thank you. Yay. Day in Hollywood history. Okay, so let's move on to our forgotten classic. Grand Hotel 1932. Oh, it's so good. What do you think, so Gordon? Much. Um, I enjoyed the movie. Um, it was interesting to know that uh so after the movie uh, i looked into the movie a little bit it's the only movie ever to this day to win best picture and not be nominated in any <laughs> other category um, it, yeah it is, it is weird like but that, it, that mean, that's yeah. bizarre to me um, it's a fun movie though i do really it enjoy is it, it, it is a fun real movie. insanely progressive for its time it's pre-code yes that's, it that's is, a they, part they, of that it's yeah definitely had the freedom to be um one uh there were a few like fun little things that i learned about it uh one is that the book it's based off of um the author based the story both on a real scandal between uh uh industrial business magnate and his stenographer and also on her own experiences working as a chambermaid in two huge like luxury hotels in Berlin. There was like the stories that she 
she picked up picked up in her life that she kind of tied together into this novel that then became this big deal movie um which it's I mean it is a shame that like nobody knows about this movie anymore because it is it's so good it's is this a really fun time like Like, the epitome of like classic filmmaking almost every moment of it there was almost no real drag time um also just like some fun things I learned about like the premiere at a Growlings Chinese theater it was like a really big event and they like built a reproduction of the iconic like circular reception desk outside and had all the stars who came to the premiere sign the desk ledger like they were entering the hotel um and also the audience at the premiere was promised a skit starring Greta Garbo after the movie Instead, what they actually got was Wallace Beery dressed in drag and doing a Garbo impersonation. Which had to have been fucking fantastic. The funniest yeah, no, thing no, ever. That, because, like, this amoral businessman in the movie then comes out. <laughs> just to... Oh, man. That's fantastic. Were there any specific things that anybody particularly liked about it or any reason why you would recommend it or any things you didn't like about it? Okay, um, I thought John Barrymore was really good. Yeah. Which character is Lionel Barrymore? He's, he's the, the sad old man. He's, he's, sad old he's man. the sad old man. Yeah. Okay, okay, because I, they're related, right? Uh, yeah, they're brothers. Yeah. Uh, all the Barrymores. Yeah. yeah, he was, um, uh, what, what, Mr. Kringleine is the name of Lionel Barrymore's character. My favorite is Joan Crawford. Yeah, I Joan think. Crawford did a really nice job She's in this movie. Snappy as hell. Yeah. Um, Lionel Barrymore was also in The Little Colonel. Oh. Billy Temple, he was. He was. He's, uh. It seems, like, weird, like, since I've just been doing random, like, movie Keeps research, the Barrymore's <laughs> keep popping up. I mean, Drew Barrymore's birthday. But it's, it's also, yeah. The <laughs> grand, the, the great granddaughter's birthday. Um, more and more Barrymore's. Um, interestingly enough, like, because, I mean, definitely, of the performances, Joan Crawford's is one of the ones that really stands the test of time, but, like, Wallace Beery, like, did not get along with her at all, and during really? one of their scenes actually stormed out and said to Colin when she learned how to act. Yeah. Shit. He was apparently quite a bastard on set the whole time. I, the reason he why nobody that vibe, yeah. <laughs> the reason why nobody like, speaks in a German accent apparently is because he got the rights to be the only person to do a German accent, so that he could be the most realistic character of all the characters in the movie. Oh, what a pretentious Yeah. <sighs> I mean he still then did do like a performance of Gre- as Greta Garbo in Dragon. Oh no, that so, like, which is hilarious. He clearly but... had like a I don't Some it's interesting sh- his Someone's uh, sense of humor. But it does seem like for the most part he was a bit of a bastard. <laughs> um, <laughs> is there anything that you did not like or that you did like or There really isn't. I was actually now and of course we're about to discuss further. Um you, I, I really will probably always love an ensemble piece. Yeah. I absolutely yeah. love when there's so many people that can come together to tell me one specific story, even if it's just simply the day in the life of a hotel. And I was 
Like, honestly, I did not think I would... I, I was not prepared to enjoy it as much as I did. I, I, I didn't that think any negative things about it. That's how I felt, too, it, the first time I, I saw it. Was, that it nothing ever happens Absolutely live. hilarious. Yeah. And honestly, like, it kind of pains me to really love Joan Crawford and anything these days. But she... Well, that's yes, her before she was crazy. Yeah, so we it, can was. Appreciate it was. It was before. That. Yeah, it was before a lot of. It was her. before she was all anger yeah. and eyebrows. Um, but still, <laughs> that doesn't make it any less sad. But uh, it is. It is very. It's a far more joyful Joan Crawford, and she is a good time. Um, and especially just even how fucking drastic Greta Garbo is is a fun time. God, all Garbo's the, rough sometimes. All the very like, ones. like everybody just has this perfect balance, and I care about every one of them, even the bastards. And um, I just I love it. I absolutely love the way it ended. Um, I love. I did not. I I love that I didn't absolutely predict everything that was gonna happen. It was actually. Kind of, it was surprising yeah. to me the directions they took by the end of it and you don't really see that in old classics you know these old classics are where these tropes fucking come from yeah, yeah. and you know rarely am I that surprised that I was just happily delighted with almost all of Grand Hotel it did, bringing up Garbo did remind me of one more thing um, so like John Barrymore and Garbo were uh, both very starstruck by each other and both considered themselves to be the inferior star to the other and they were so excited to work together and like during their love scene they got so carried away that they actually continued kissing for three full minutes after Goulding yelled cut uh, so there's like and like it's the footage apparently still sub- survives of them just making out basically that's literally they just started, that acting opportunity to make out for they started kissing and decided to just make out and perfect. I do think that that's like just kind of freaking hilarious and I also do really love that you can't quite predict where it's going and yet there are so many things that inspire like they kind of do allude to the certain it's got like really just Grand Budapest Hotel has Grand Hotel all over it mm-hmm. oh well like, yeah from the, the title on down from the title like, on yeah, down but they uh, both have the circular reception desk and yeah. they have that like above you shot of I'll, their also the that sort of like well the main clerk of the yeah. hotel is exact looks like the exact same person they've obviously oh, yeah, they tried to make job. him look as exactly like the main clerk as possible in the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, yeah. He's, he is a, he's a, the the one that's got and the baby. Just, yeah, there is just color added in the Grand Budapest right, Hotel. Yeah, no, like, and like, uh, like what I was gonna say, like all the hallways are the like washed out pink color in fucking uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, and uh, you know, in a way, you could view that as you know. Being I really like do get lots of pinks, of yeah. vibes of pinks and purples when I see Grand yeah. Hotel. Yeah. I'd be you very surprised it, it if the set was like orange or something. Yeah. Like, yeah, no. Well, I love um, all the Art Deco. I love, I love that like almost every shot is just washed out by cigarette smoke because every single character. How did you watch this movie and not want to smoke like oh, every dude, 15 it was rough. Well, it was so you're bad. You're so in tune. There is like a weird like smoking courtesy through most of the movie. Like yeah. none of them ever smoke in someone else's room. They only ever smoke in their own room. And a lot invited, of times they yeah. leave to go to the well, hallway. And I love all these old, like, all this old cigarette etiquette that doesn't yeah. exist in the world anymore. Yeah. That yeah. everyone had so poshly analyzed within that movie because they utilize <laughs> it at all times. Yeah. I mean, I guess my one thing with the movie is, like, I do get occasionally uncomfortable with. I mean, just that, like. That whole scene where Barrymore, like, uh, like it's 
underneath the frame, but Barrymore obviously has his hands all over Joan Crawford. And it's like, it's when they're first talking and he, like, comes up behind her. And, yeah. like, it's not in the yeah. frame. You can't see it, but there's no way he's not feeling her up. And then later on, he slaps her ass in the same scene. You, well, yeah, and no. it's just oh, yeah. one of those I that, mean, like, her, you, the reason that doesn't bother me as much is because they, they, they give you enough background between both their characters to both, like, have you understand that he knows that he's this scoundrel, but, you know, deep down on the inside, he's really in the middle. But also that she is willing to put up with a certain amount. Because I was very upset at, like, the beginning of this movie. Because, like, by the time his hand touches her ass, I'm like, strike three, motherfucker. <laughs> you know, like, um, because, yeah, because just the way he kind of speaks to her and the way he's real big on taking women's arms. And I'm like, oh, man, yeah. I, will, I will elbow a motherfucker in a heartbeat. Like, the Baron is definitely But, but also, like, they also show, you know, her they showcase her character as someone who definitely thinks through exactly how far she's going to allow a man to go so, so that she can succeed in her own way. So the fact that, you know, she puts up with that, at first I could be super mad about of, come on, you know, this character is not very real or she wouldn't be quite as ecstatic about receiving this attention. But once you learn more about her character and you realize that she really does think through, I, like when I, when I went back and I thought about that scene, I thought this is definitely her toying with him to see if this is a person she could pursue in any way to also get ahead. And I really can't fault that to an extent. So, like, by the end of it, and of course, you know, the, the, not the greatest things happen to John Barrymore's character anyways. So, <laughs> you could say that there is a weird kind of justice there in, with any, any of that. Um, but I just think because they actually make a point to explain that, which doesn't happen in a movie probably for the next goddamn 30 years... Um, well, I guess it's not It's not more about how it's represented. It's more about the fact that, like... You know it's he clearly, was all about that. It's that clearly... Was all yeah. It's not yeah. part of the story because it's cut out of the frame. Yeah. So it's something that he was taking advantage of her to do. Like, And that's yeah. the problem with me. Is it's not yeah. about the character it's of the Baron. About John it's about Barrymore John Barrymore Crawford. himself being, is uh, being kind of yeah. creepy yeah, and is deliberately creepy. making Joan Crawford uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. That is fair. Yeah, um, no. that so is... that's my only problem with it is there's definitely a scene that's, that's there's no way that's not what's happening just yeah. in the yeah. below the camera. Right. Yeah, no. And it's, yeah, it's, it has less, it's got nothing to do with the story of the movie itself. It has to do with John Barry Bourne, the yeah. man like not being cool with Joan Crawford, the woman. Yeah. That's absolutely yeah. But that is... It is like that 30 is one of those seconds inevitable in movie, things that you pretty much accept. It's from 1932. All the classics, yeah, <laughs> with all the classics you're doing, man. There's always going to be something. There's always going to be something. Because, yeah. you know, and that's just shit they were brave enough to do. Kind I of do, sort of on camera. Overall, <laughs> I do overall still love Grand Hotel. It's an excellent movie. Um, and, I mean, it is so much fun. Like, the characters interact so well. And it was the first, the first, the first ensemble piece. Not technically, but I'll get to that later. I'll <laughs> save that for after the break. Soon. But it was the first, like, ensemble talkie. Um, and it changed damn it changed near everything. It. Which we, we will talk about yeah. after the break. All right, so we're going to take a quick break, and we will be back with our main topic. Break. We missed you. We missed you guys. 
for uh, our main topic today is ensemble pieces, and for those of you who did not pick up from the context clues, the definition of an ensemble piece is a story involving no single star, but multiple characters of equal importance. And that is that's what we're talking about today. That's it. That's okay. We're done, I guess. <laughs> that's it. There you go. you know. More you know. <laughs> um, who wants to start? Yeah, no, you, you yeah. can start. Yeah. All right, well, to demonstrate uh, my great love for ensemble pieces and what I really feel like it means, I had two uh, main movies, though there are many movies I feel like embody the ensemble piece wonderfully. And, of course, I am in agree. I am in agreement that the Grand Hotel started us off in talkie film in a great way. I wanted to talk about two different movies I think are perfect, and the first one is The Hidden Fortress, which of course is the, and the reason I wanted to talk about this is because I do think that it did one great thing for ensemble pieces, although it is a great movie on its own, fantastic piece of work. Um, but The Hidden Fortress, and a lot of people know this, but for those who don't, it was a big fucking influence for A New Hope, which of course is the first Star Wars movie that was made. <laughs> Not chronologically. And the reason I think that's such a huge deal, as ensemble pieces go, is because um, if you've ever seen The Hidden Fortress, it is about um, essentially these two uh, idiot soldiers who, depending on which subtitles of The Hidden Fortress that you watch, are either um, for the losing side or were mistaken for the losing side, um, because it's different in whichever version you see. Um, but both end up on, you know, the shitty side of a war and get um, tangled up through their own greed into actually helping a secret princess cross into a safe place so that she is not beheaded. Um, so you would think that the, the inspiration for Star Wars all comes from this whole, like, save the princess ideal. And that isn't actually why George Locust was inspired by the Hidden Fortress. And you can definitely tell because they actually treat their female characters in the Hidden Fortress way better than they do <laughs> in any Star Wars movie that I fucking see. Because George um, is a dickhead. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's actually what he drew from the Hidden Fortress is that the entirety of the Hidden Fortress, though it is about this princess that's hidden in this Hidden Fortress that needs to get out of it into a different place, it is from the perspective, essentially, of these two idiot soldiers. So these... Very much so, your typical secondary characters are what they keep at the basis to tell this whole story. And I think that's really important for the ensemble piece because it is, of course, you know, not about any main protagonist, but about how even these, you know, the most minor of characters, no matter what their screen time is or what their story is, their importance to the specific story can be very significant. And that is why a lot of Star Wars is essentially told from the perspective of C-3PO and R2-D2. Yeah, yeah. And that is because yeah. that is because George Locust watched The Hidden Fortress when he was a kid. Um, and I think that's super important to the ensemble piece because it's one of the first times like this importance was, or this focus, especially of the camera, was given to these secondary characters as opposed to, um, you know, our, the princess that the story's fucking about or yeah. her main soldier, which we spend a lot of the movie following. Yeah. Um, and also, The Hidden Fortress is just a great time. Um, and there are, I did feel a couple fun facts about The Hidden Fortress that I will add. And that um, the reason uh, Kurosawa made The Hidden Fortress is because to thank the studios for letting him do his more intense pieces, like uh, Rashomon, 
or uh, Seven Samurai, he decided to repay them by making a story that was just happy and fun. And that is why the Hidden Fortress exists, because he just wanted to make That's a movie. Great. Like, his little words were, um, let's see if I wrote it down. Commercial and accessible and fun and wistful, I think, <laughs> was the words that he used to describe what he wanted to do when he made the Hidden Fortress. So it was pretty much it was his a fair just... fair description. Yeah, his, uh, he didn't want any anxieties, no major things. He just wanted to make a fun movie, and you have the Hidden Fortress. And because it existed, we have all of Star Wars. So yeah. thank, thank you, you, Kurosawa, for yeah. doing that. Another fun fact is uh, the reason the princess looks kind of so intense is because uh, the uh, Misa Uehara, who played Princess Yuki in the Hidden Fortress, she describes her first makeup session... Um, by saying that Kurosawa walked into the dressing room with a picture of Elizabeth Taylor and said, this is what I want my princess to look like. <laughs> so yes, the image she had Jesus. was their makeup groups doing their best to make their princess look like look Elizabeth like Taylor. Holy that shit. That is crazy. So you can like, <laughs> yes, the main insane. inspiration for Princess Leia, that one's main inspiration was Elizabeth Taylor. Okay. So I always thought that was, um, <coughs> that was another real fun fact. The other movie I wanted to focus on, because I think it is probably the epitome of an ensemble piece um, by one of the directors that I think mastered the ensemble movie, period, um, is Twelve Angry Men by Sidney Lumet, done in 1257. God, I love Sidney Lumet. He's um, freaking incredible. Oh, yes. He's... God, I could talk about him by himself just forever. We probably will one day. But <laughs> the reason I specifically wanted to talk about Twelve Angry Men, because... Twelve Angry Men, if you haven't seen it, is, of course, about these 12 men within a drawer room trying to decide whether they should send this poor soul to prison last night, or the day before, or whenever mm. he got caught. And, yeah, it's pretty much, like, just them in, what, like, over 12 hours deciding whether or not th this man's fate. But the reason I think it's perfect as an ensemble piece is that you definitely follow Henry Fonda for the most part, and he's your rising advocate for kind of who you're rooting for for most of it every single juror no matter how small like some men only have five minutes of content but it is poignant what they have to say and it makes it it, it is absolutely relevant every even small grunt or uh any issue or any small nuance they have to their body language is important for the point of the entire movie and it is just it is an excellent way that to really broadcast that no matter how big your role it is extremely important to the writing of a story or the plot of a story. Um, and you really have to give that to Sidney Lumet because him and a, a great deal of his other movies have great ensembles. Um, he, he was a very big, he was very good at just bringing a bunch yeah. of people together and not having these main protagonist stories. And that's a big part of Lumet too is like he doesn't really have like, a, like as notoire, he doesn't really have like a visual stick the way it's like, you know, you can always visually recognize a Wes Anderson movie or a Kubrick movie or something no. like that. But he, like, the thing that really defines a, a Sidney Lumet movie is that he always manages to draw out some of the most incredibly poignant performances from all of his actors. From all of his actors. Like, and I think that's why he didn't really seem geared to a lot of main protagonist-driven stories. Um, and I think he liked writers that didn't really follow it that way. Like, the man, uh, Reginald Rose, is who wrote 12 Angry Men. And they were really good friends, and he really wanted to do the story because he did love the way the characters were all told and all came together for this one major point. 
um, and all those other ones. And he, another thing about the man, like you're saying about how you can't really tell that he did the same kind of movies because he really could form the ensemble in any sort of story. Well, he did everything from Express. yeah, murder to the Orient Express to the fucking to the Whiz to the first Child's Play. He directed the Whiz. <laughs> He did the child's play he did was not I actually was looking that up too. It was not the child's the the Chucky Child's Play. It was a different movie. It is a different movie. That was also like a thriller. But it's a thriller horror that movie. It's called Child's Play, but it's a totally oh. different movie. Okay. Well still he could he jumped from I, like, genre to, to genre. Cause, I mean and then he did like network. So he could really he could network. put a cast of people. Jesus he could put a group Christ. of people in any in any scenario and bring that together beautifully yeah. um, another fun fact I learned about Zinni <laughs> Lumet that I just thought was kind of fun is that he wanted to do uh, the Death Wish movies with huh. Jack, with Jack Lemon as his main man huh. and I literally thought for like 15 minutes like how much better the, would that the Death bo- Wish the I entire mean... Death Wish franchise have been had Sidney Lumet got to do it with Jack Lemon. <laughs> that would have been right, insane, freaking unusual. Movie. That would, yeah, be. it would have been odd. So I don't that, know what I don't like, think that it would have been what it but was. But I guess it kind of works because it would just be like a tired old man instead of it being like. I mean, with Bronson, like no matter what his age, he's gonna be like this macho. You know, yeah. figure. Like, yeah. But Lumen, yeah. I feel like, like Death Wish would have been far Lemon more of like been a like, psychological kind of thriller. Yeah. And probably actually been poignant as to what are oh, the, no, what are this man issues and why wish. is he doing this? There yeah. wouldn't have been Death Wish two, three, or four, <laughs> or five, six, or seven. Yeah, it would been a franchise. <laughs> like it, it, just been... it just would have been Death Wish by itself, and it would probably have been you know a great movie. For the better. Like, and I, you know, the um the third movie I definitely had always planned to mention that I love so much in my life that I think might also be if you're not going to pick a Sidney Lumet movie for the greatest ensemble piece is the movie Clue. God yeah. damn Because God yeah. damn it, this clue fucking nail the ensemble. Like so yeah. much so, they're so purposely trying to do it that they give you three different endings and eventually stand on the fact that no, actually everyone's the bad guy. Everyone's important. You have no idea how writing a movie should work. Like yeah. it's like, uh, it's just it it runs it it if it's not like the epitome of the perfection of it, it at least sends home the idea that an ensemble piece can be one of the most entertaining things and it really is getting the most out of your movie so much if you really care about every specific person well the best thing about Clue is that literally in every single shot every single character is doing something funny like it's like no one character yeah, is being hilarious at one moment. Not once you really like yeah. have favorite. Funny. They're just yeah, you can it's watch a, it. Just like the dialogue, dialogue is so snappy. Yes. It's, it's so snappy. It's so like much, they just they had to have a good time doing it and yeah. new takes over and over and over again because there had to be room for ad libbing and it just is this perfectly. It's just this cast coming together. Like you could you could watch it once and just focus on Mr. Green. Great time. Watch it once. Just just focus on Professor Plum. You're having a great time. Like, you could watch it over and over and over again, and you will get something new out of it every time. And it's just, it's beautiful. And I've watched it a million times ever since I was a kid, and not once been unhappy that I've oh, seen God. it. Oh, God. Clue is, I mean, it, it was in my top ten I love list ensemble one. Like, Yeah, it was in my top ten list in episode one. It I, is. So was Murder on the Orient Express, though. So. I, I didn't see Clue until I was, like, 16 or 17 what, years old. What, at our house? <laughs> We played probably, it all the time. Probably. And, like, uh, yeah. 
I was like, how have I missed out? Oh, people didn't want to watch that, me and my brother, because we just quote the whole movie. Can you keep a secret? So good. <laughs> um, I, uh, I did a little research into the, the history of ensemble pieces just to get kind of a, I don't know, an idea on, you know, just sort of the concept of making them and all that. Um, I found that it's nothing new in plays. Like, it's a pretty, it was a pretty common thing in stage to have, on the stage, to have, like, you know, a variety of intertwined stories. Um, and, like, the concept was technically officially introduced in film in the silent era by D.W. Griffith and his 1916 epic Intolerance, which followed four um, separate parallel plots following multiple characters over hundreds of years through various cultures and time periods. So it sounds like a silent cloud atlas, kind of. Yeah. Which almost intrigues me. But also, it's like a freaking epic, long, silent film, so From I don't know if I've got that. And, and, and it's D.W. Griffith. So yeah, and also like, it's D.W. Yeah, Griffith. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, like, in spite of its use in the silent era, for the most part, Hollywood preferred casting, like, just one or two stars per film to try and maximize on the star power of each individual actor and their fan base. And it wasn't until Grand Hotel, Grand 1932, Hotel. that they decided to, like, see if, like, we can actually bring all of these fan bases together for a single movie. And it totally worked. And... It was genius! It, it was, like, at the time, it was the highest grossing film in its time. Um... And the success of Grand Hotel immediately made them, like, go and try to mimic that. Like, the next year they came out with Dinner at Eight, um, which starred Gene Harlow, John and Lionel Barrymore, Wallace Beery, and Billy Burke. So pretty much the same cast as Grand Hotel. They just swapped out the female characters. Um, and, like, over time it kind of became developed to, like, focus on and emphasize the, like, interconnectivity of characters. And, like, even when characters are strangers to one another. And this concept was, like, usually presented to the audience uh, along that, like, six degrees of separation theory and kind of requiring the audience to navigate and piece together the plot using cognitive mapping, which, like, cognitive mapping is, like, essentially where you have to create the map of the story in mm -hmm. your head. You, you got this piece, mm -hmm. and you know it goes here, really and then like you get this the piece. early evolution of tropes. And, oh, yeah, and so, like, these movies kind of, like, required people to, like, piece these stories. And, like, you can see a beginning of that in um, Grand Hotel, where in the beginning of the movie, uh, Garbo, her maid, mentions that there's the handsome man that always gets on the elevator when they do. They always seem to be around them. And then, like, way later in the movie when Barrymore, the Baron, is talking to his, like, partner in crime, he says that he's always following the ballerina around to learn her schedule so that he can steal her pearls. And so you piece together, like, oh, that but, guy that they yeah. see in the elevator, that's the Baron. And so that's an early kind of, you know, they don't do a lot of it in Grand Hotel, but you do, there are times where you realize that, like, something that's involved with one person's character or with one character's story is as a result of something that's going on in another character's story. Um, and so I really like the idea. But, like, unfortunately, um, 
this sort of, I guess, I mean, you could kind of call it like ensemble cast theory of how an ensemble cast is officially made, has kind of also brewed what, I mean, I guess you would call it all-star cast theory. And all-star cast theory, like, took the idea of, like, I mean, it's similar, it's different from ensemble cast theory, for sure. Like, it's similar in the sense that, you know, both types do, both types of movies do feature, you know, a large amount of famous actors, but unlike ensemble cast, where all the stars are equally important, an all-star cast will typically still follow the same basic rules of one protagonist and a lot of side characters, except in the all-star cast, all the side characters are also played by really famous people, even, like, in minor, you know, cameo supporting roles. Well, I think that's a problem we still suffer with because that's the oh, reason. Oh, for sure. That's like, the reason I would definitely argue that um, the adventure movies and a lot of our superhero movies do not really fit into the ensemble piece because even though they definitely have the separate tropes and they definitely are all working to the same goal and there's no main protagonist, we get so involved in just color coding these specific different characters. Yeah. We, they don't have enough depth to actually form a true ensemble cast. Well, I think a lot of people have kind of forgotten <coughs> what ensemble theory is yes. and have latched and more on to all-star theory. We're on the all-star theory, and that's the thing, um, and, and people don't even realize that there's a difference. Except yeah. if you watch the Avengers movies, you realize, oh, you know, I think like four of these guys at least didn't even have to fucking be here for this. Or if <laughs> they were here, yeah. they didn't have to be played by yeah, this famous Yes, like, or they're, they're only like, here so we could get everybody here in at the end. And that's not yeah. the same thing, yeah, you know? Yeah, no, no, you're so, right. Yeah, I think we definitely fall into that, especially even these days. In this oh, I think, that, I think at this point we're at, a, we're at it's at the worst. Like. It's at its worst because yeah, we've definitely not. We don't. We do not care to really write a story um, with any twenty characters that. As much as I love him, I think we could. Uh, you can actually see this in like the work of Wes Anderson. Because I would say the Royal Tenenbaums is a true yeah. ensemble cast. Yeah. But Grand Budapest Hotel really has a clear protagonist, and all the other characters are played by yeah. like. Tilda Swinton did not have to play that old lady yeah. under a shit ton of makeup also, for one scene I also scene think in the it movie, is it does it is apart from the ensemble cast when the reason that all the other characters are connected is because of the main protagonist. Yeah, no, um, it's not yeah, the same. And that's There's the Grand Budapest tells almost everybody that's relevant that is relevant as opposed to their relationship to. Whereas, like, his name, the, in, like, in the Grand Cloud Budapest Atlas Hotel. or Crash or Babel or Magnolia or Love Actually, like, all these people don't necessarily all know each other but all yeah. their lives are affected definitely. by their lives of the other yeah. and also it's oh, like there are definitely ensemble pieces that play the trope game yeah. and do it very well like Stand By Me is a very these four boys these four separate tropes four very different personalities but all required to tell their stories and one of the biggest ones is uh, The Breakfast Club it's a definite yeah. trope movie but you have all these genres that people can relate to it's not all one person's fault. They're in fucking detention. They're all, you know, like, yeah. they're all there on their own account and they all have an important part well, to play in the movie, and a, even though yeah. they follow these specific and I mean, even the, like, the, like, principal has, like, his whole own yeah. separate story that he's yeah. going through. So, yeah, so, like, it's very, that's the, you can still play this trope game. It doesn't have to be super complex. It doesn't have no. to be, like, you know, you don't gotta do some fucking run, low leader run or. <laughs> Or, you know, crazy like, um, nonsense to snatch like 
Nice. Turkish and Tommy yeah. never meet the never two meet. like pawn leaders. But they're super relevant like, to why any of that happens. That's in, like another one. And I will I would argue that it's far more likely to do a good ensemble piece with an object being your main interest. Yeah. Than it can ever be with a person. Well yeah. quest a quest movie. Which is uh one of the things I really like about Maltese Falcon is that you can kind of simultaneously consider it as like your basic protagonist movie and as an ensemble piece. Like it starts out with like Humphrey Bogart is yeah. the main character. You definitely but feel as like you you're get these him, other but, characters yeah. and you start yeah. to realize what the story actually is, like the last forty-five minutes of that movie is nothing but pure ensemble yeah. piece. When all the characters are in a room together, yeah. and, and he they're spends all, all his time just leaning another. on the yeah. door, listening most of the time. You know, he becomes even he himself understands he's not relevant to the continuation of this. Yeah. Um, um, part. Yeah. So yeah, I would argue absolutely that it. Um, but it also has a lot of. And that's probably my favorite thing about Maltese Falcon is that it has all the tropes of an adventure movie, but it's a film. But nobody movie does instead. any. Nobody like, does any adventure stuff. There's no vines swinging. <laughs> we, they just like, talk about it. <laughs> machete chopping through the jungle. They're in like hotel rooms in San Francisco. Talking about how it's already been so hard. <laughs> <laughs> the adventures already happened. Mad about it. Like, yes. It's just the the coda to an adventure. Um. God, I love that movie so yeah, much. Yeah, that is a great movie. Um, and so I, I do love that it sort of is a regular movie that involve that evolves into an ensemble piece. Because um, I mean, once like Sydney Greenstreet and Peter Laurie and yeah, you really don't there. care about Humphrey Bogart anymore. Sydney Greenstreet cracks me the fuck up in everything uh, that he's in. He's just Big and he's fat just, and goofy and quirky and super gay. And he and, laughs at Humphrey Bogart, and you want to laugh at him too. Yeah. Well, he does the he does the same thing in Casablanca too. Yeah. Like I love him just swatting around with a fly swatter the whole time, like with his little fez on, <laughs> the parrot on his shoulder. Like what a ridiculous character! Does everything he plays, he's always a ridiculous character, but he does it so well, and he's so like, he's such a like. Very refined kind of dandy. Dandy. This is spats and shit. Um, <laughs> Speaking of dapper. Yeah. I feel like there's a good argument between the ensembleness and the protagonist character within the Coen Brothers. Oh, brother, where art thou? Though it's definitely, I, I totally it's definitely a main protagonist. I don't know. It's I don't know a main if you can truly count Ulysses fall, as also, the main character. I, I, I don't, I don't see, count him as the main character. That's, but like, see, that's my thing. Like, I, I think a lot of people would argue Their that, plots are equally as important as his. That, yeah, that yeah. he seems I mean, to be the driving force. Plot, and, but, of course, it's based off the Odyssey where, you know, our original is, is the driving force. But within yeah. Brother Where Art Thou, the, the way that movie is told you don't really care about him as a main protagonist. And the reason everybody is doing what they're doing within the movie doesn't always depend on him at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, really, like, the flooding of the farmland is a far more driver of the plot in that yeah. movie than he himself is yeah. at all. Yeah, nice. So I feel like that's one of those that ride the line of, though, we do have our main protagonist that everyone's going to remember and talk about. That movie is not about him, and that ensemble is what makes that movie great. So... But I do. I feel like I would meet people in this world that definitely want to want to fight me about that one. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I feel like a lot of Coen Brothers are definitely ensemble pieces. Oh yeah, like like they the Battle of the Buster they, Scruggs they love is absolutely. The, I still yeah. need to watch that. That's a it lot is a of good fun. time. Um, um, it is a good time. Well, it's just like the the idea of like 
a collection of vignettes is one thing, but it's like a, not just is it a collection of vignettes, but they're all westerns, but they're also all like an analysis of different types, types of western of West, movies. Yeah, they're all. Okay. It's so like, like the it's first also one's like, like a weird meta commentary on westerns in general. The okay. first one's like Without the being. singing cowboy western, and okay. the second one is like a super uh, bleak um, representation of like Pacific Northwest. And then the third one is like a gold prospecting story, and then the fourth one is uh, a like very very realistic representation of like the Oregon Trail, and the last very, one's like oh, a ghost settler. story. Yeah, and the last one's like a ghost story. So they're all yeah, they're all a very different stories, but definitely okay. within the same the different things that built the Western world, really. Um. Um, yeah, yeah, they're all the they and they are all great. Um, but yeah, it's a good time. Okay. I w- uh, two movies I was going to mention. Um, Ghostbusters. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. I love Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters is fucking fantastic. There's also, just no getting away- around it. Like they're just it's just a good fucking movie. <laughs> That's how it is. Pulp Fiction. Um, yes, and Paul yes. Fiction is another one Most with the definitely. like but degrees Tar- of separation. But is another big one that does an excellent. Ens- he wants to yeah. do. Yeah, I mean, I would people. definitely say that in Glorious um, Bastards. I would say really, Glorious Kill Bill Bastards, is one of the yes. only ones that isn't. Yeah, no, and Kill Bill, Jackie Brown, Jackie Brown, yeah, um, definitely, but to a lesser extent than Kill Bill. But, I mean, Reservoir yeah. Dogs is definitely um, an ensemble piece. Reservoir Dogs, like, yeah, it's also got to be one of the greatest ensemble yeah, fucking no. pieces. I mean, I would argue, like to some degree, Mr. White is the main character. But at the same time, Mr. Orange is so much of a main Yes, so, like, there's just no way, and there, you wouldn't know that without the way the others are represented. Like, even the things you learn about that movie have to come through the interaction of all these people together. Yeah. Um, And then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is absolutely an ensemble piece. Um, as well and I mean as the hateful well eight, eight, like, yeah, yeah, hateful eight. I just really eight people in a fucking eight. room. Like. Um, I actually, I also, I read something, and this I thought was a good point, though I'm not a fan of this movie, but um, oh, I've forgotten. Um, within comedies, because sometimes some of the greatest masters of the ensemble piece can be within comedy, especially yeah. mo- more modernly. Um, but I did read something about American Pie and how the American Pie movie is actually... And I did have to agree with this. As much as I really don't like the American Pie movie, yeah. the American Pie movie does perfectly set together this, these essential separate tropes of characters and puts yeah. them all in the same world and they balance each other perfectly. I have wrong. to agree that American Pie is a great ensemble piece. Though I would not really enjoy it as a movie. <laughs> You're not wrong. Yeah. You are um, not wrong. No. Uh, yeah. And I, yeah, and I wanted to mention that comedies are just also, it is a genre that also kind of, which Clue, of course, is 100% a comedy. The Grand Hotel is 90% a comedy. So a lot of the stuff I mean, we've already yeah. mentioned are definitely what you would consider comedies. Um, um, I mean, like, Snatch is, is mostly Snatch comedy. definitely a comedy. Um, but a comedy is also most likely, I think, to make the mistake of especially these days, is also doing the all-star cast kind yeah. of thing. Um, would you, okay, would you consider Blockstock an ensemble piece? or Because it's all driven by the one guy that fucked up gambling. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, like, um, Guy Ritchie from the movies that he did that were good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all of them do have an excellent kind of ensemble thing going for him. Uh, yeah. He did like to definitely utilize the separate tropes. And in a way that made it realistic and also funny. 
Um, but not every time. But I would say live talks in two smoking barrels, definitely. Boogie nights. Rock and roll is a Boogie. little more. Boogie fucking nights. Boogie nights. Boogie is, nights. Is because I mean, like Marky Mark, like almost is the main character of that but movie. But still, yeah. yeah, nothing about but that movie like, is just about. There him. are so many no. other stories going on in that movie. Um. Yeah. It, and it does, I think it does a really good job God, Julian similar to Hidden Fortress heart. in Star yes. Wars. is like taking these very minor characters that people wouldn't normally think should ever be your protagonist and giving you the story from their perspective, whether yeah. they seem protagonist-like or not. Yeah. Um, and Boogie Nights is an excellent example of that. I mean, Seven Samurai, too, of course. Uh, I've been trying to decide, like, what do you think about... Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because it's like three characters, but like, is that enough to be enough? No. I say no, and this is why. Because I would Give consider me the storytelling of all of that to be the entire T of the Dollars Trilogy. And that, I'm sorry, is driven by the man with no name. I mean, you're right. All of yeah, the stories 100%. only exist I, and I only exist together because it is from his perspective. So I would argue about. specifically the good, the bad, the ugly, yes, does seem to be far more of an ensemble piece than the others will ever be, but I have to view that as a whole. Here's one that I'm interested in hearing what you guys have to say is Ocean's Eleven. I have so much to say about the Ocean's Eleven. Is movies. Ocean's Eleven an ensemble piece because Danny Ocean is definitely the main character of that movie. And it's just all star casting. And yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's I just all sarcastic. That's what it always was. was. Like, it was, even all, the it was always version. meant to be that, even in the original version. But I would definitely argue that it is sort of meta for an ensemble piece. Because, yes, I think they're all set up at first to have these big names in them and play off each other. They're also, especially the newer ones, where all movies created because all these guys pretty much wanted to fucking hang out and do a movie. Yeah, no. However, <laughs> I think that that in itself is a big deal to the ensemble piece. Like, the whole idea that we want these different tropes together is because... But none of them have their own stories. stories. They're all, like, just... Really, they're all secondary characters in Danny Ocean's story. Yeah. But Danny Ocean does, like, the least amongst almost all the things that happen within the movies. It doesn't change the fact that he's the main character. Yeah, he's, they, the, he's the he's boss. The he's the guy course. who's, like, like, ringing them all together. And every time he needs them, he goes out and he finds them on the whatever shit they're now doing. I don't know. They all the definitely work together. together to decide what they're going to do and how they're going to do it for the most part. Because even he doesn't have the best plans. He just simply goes and gets the guys with the plans for what they're doing. And they don't do it because of him in the second and third movies. He wants to pull the heist in the first one because he just got out of prison and he wants to do the next thing. The second one, they pull the heist because one of their buddies are dying. And then the third one, they pull the heist because another one of their buddies got fucked over by a different thing. So in this later two movies, Danny Ocean isn't the driving force. They all get back together. I thought together. the second one, they pulled the heist because the guy they pulled the heist from the oh, first time Oh, you're right. Time the second is, one is when the guy they pulled the first and third so time So they ultimately are doing it because of Danny because, Ocean. Because, yes, he but they all made their own decisions in the first one. To come after them. But in the third one, it is because, oh, I can't remember his fucking name. But he, like, go, almost goes into heart failure because Al Pacino's character fucks him over. Because Al Pacino's the main bad guy in the latest one. And that, well, in Ocean's 13. Because there's Ocean's 8 now. I forgot. I haven't seen Ocean's 8. And I also feel like I'm fighting a lot because... God damn it, I love the Ocean's movies so much. But I, I, I really don't think... Cause see, I'm not when saying I, they're not good movies. You're, no, and I'm I not... You, I and mean, I'm which, also, honestly, I'm the not, second 12 willing, and 13, honestly, I'm willing to movies, concede but. also that they may not be ensemble pieces. But when I think of the protagonist being the driving force, I mean, he is the one 
being he or she is the one being followed and whose actions are dictating the actions of the rest of the people. And now I would argue that it is Danny Ocean's actions at first that dictate everybody else's. He is not, like, the, the entirety of the whole scheme cannot be, it could not be done alone, and it is not just done with him being the number one action person within all of these. I mean, that's like saying, I don't know, like, that to me would be like saying, like, I don't know, I can't think of a good example right now, but it's like, he is more the man behind the curtain to me in Ocean's movies. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yeah. And that's why I don't really see him in, in this lead protagonist way. Because even anything he tries to do as a lead protagonist, all his bros are like, you'd be fucking, you're fucking up, man. You shouldn't, you shouldn't do this. They're like, when his girl comes around and he starts getting sidetracked, they're like, no, nah, man, we shouldn't, you shouldn't pursue. Like, <laughs> he just doesn't have these main protagonists tropes in my opinion mm -hmm. like most of them do which is why I would argue well, he's got it's the, not... he has the the foil he has the tragic flaw he's got the goal like he does kind of follow the hero's journey but he's um, not a hero in my opinion I mean no he's not he's I mean <laughs> so definitively I, I, just, I still feel like it is on the line though I don't know if I I could bring I could have a full argument to bring it back around because you can also with Stand By Me argue about that one too yeah, a definitely bit. a main. I mean, like, there's a narrator, and the narrator is one of the characters in the movie, and he's the only character you see in his own home. But I mean, I feel like they they give each of them an epilogue, man. <laughs> like, those that 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 is a coming of age story that absolutely requires him to have those friendships. Yeah. yeah. See, see, this is sort of the debate that I was having is like, uh, you know. But none of them How really much have their of own a protagonist they're all the same, is they're too all the much same. of a protagonist. And I think you know? Stand By Me might have too much of a protagonist. Yeah. And same for Ocean's Eleven. Um, That's fair. Whereas, I mean, I don't think Breakfast Club has a protagonist. I think Breakfast Club is absolutely an ensemble piece. And ultimately, yeah. I think Maltese Falcon is too mu has too much of a protagonist too. Yeah, As, I, it may not. Yeah, the, it's really that the last half of the Maltese Falcon. Yeah, it's it an becomes, ensemble piece. It becomes it an ensemble be, piece. But the first half of the movie really isn't. Whereas, like, you know, then there's Grand Budapest, which is three collections of three different groups of people all doing their own shit. That's all interconnected. Or, I'm sorry, I meant. That's, that's not Cinema. about. I meant to or, talk about Doctor Strange. Yeah. Life. yeah. <laughs> Grand Budapest is absolutely has too much of a protagonist. Yeah. Um. Although I feel like you could kind of argue who the protagonist is, but. Um. But yeah, Doctor. Well, Str I don't really. I think of that movie is more about um, Zero and fucking. What's his face? The actor's name. Ray Fiennes. Ray Fiennes. I think it's. They, they share equal billing in that movie. I mean, like, yeah. And no one else really kind of comes close. Yeah. Um, well, and that's another one that's hard because the narrator of the story is... A, is zero. And then the yeah. narrator but, of the wraparound story but, but is But the Jude main Law. protagonist of his story is definitely Ray Fine's character. So yeah. it's sort of an in... It's this weird kind of story. Since it's a story within a story within a story, I would argue that, yes... There are kind of multiple... Only cert it's certain elements of each of those stories that happen. Yeah. Which does perhaps make Grand Budapest a ensemble piece after all. Yeah. Like because it's three way. separate stories that are all only exist because of the previous because stories the previous happened. One. At least one of the stories, I would argue, is an ensemble story, but not all of them are. Hmm. 
Although it's like it's almost like an ensemble cast. It's an ensemble piece that uses all star cast theory. Yeah. yeah. Which is totally something. Which I, could, which I feel like you could argue in the reverse way is what the Ocean movies do. Is they the kind of use the all star cast theory to. Yeah. No. No. That's ensemble theory. Yeah. So it is. It is a very fine line that we're at here. Um. I did want to shoot one question, like. Do you guys, like, think that ensemble theory is kind of effectively dead at this point? Or, like, is it squeaking by? Because it does seem like, for the most part, all-star cast theory is what reigns in movie making. Um, (coughs) Particularly in comedy and action, which are the two (coughs) blockbuster genres. Yeah, I think in action, um, especially Harley Quinn, in many ways, could have been an all a ensemble cast movie, but it's definitely not. It's definitely an all star cast movie. Well, and I think no matter what, for the past at least two decades, our superhero movies have not at all been ensemble pieces. Like there are are not given a shit. There is about our other characters fucking at all. It is all our star cast, and it is all let's throw all these people because because people know their names. But no, like we don't give a shit. Do you know about Hawkeye's backstory? Like, no, were, were they trying to give us pieces of this? Why is Jeremy Renner nominated for an Oscar yeah. playing fucking Hawkeye when Hawkeye is just like barely there? I mean, my thing like, is, yeah, we're getting pieces of all these characters, but it should yeah. not—it should not take you eight movies to finally finish my ensemble piece writing. Like, yeah, no, no, and then get not the fuck out of here. No, like, yeah, none yeah. of them are written well. None of the stories are even written well, and that's yeah. my biggest thing about yeah, the ensemble pieces. It is what really separates it from an all-star piece is how well its characters are fucking written. Yeah. Period. Or, or at least that is what our—that yeah. is what our yeah. Fast and Furious movies are missing. So yeah. I would argue that like the first Fast and Furious is a good ensemble piece. Though you could definitely have you're still writing that fine line of the main protagonist. He of course changes out of necessity. Uh, so I mean I would argue that the first couple of those have this really good gunning for being a good ensemble piece, but they become trash because they yeah. stopped writing because they stopped yeah. giving a shit. That's why, and that's the same reason the superhero movies become trash and most yeah. of our action movies all the fucking expendable movies can fuck right off they're not ensemble pieces because nobody cares about the writing and they become trash everyone thinks we're gonna remember all these other characters John claude van damme did and arnie did and yeah, fucking no. and we're gonna replace actual writing with that in our mind but no yeah. we don't know anything about all these weird fucking old men that have a bunch of guns that got together to fucking fight well, like, I mean, there are some people who are still doing it. Like, there is Wes Anderson, there is Tarantino, there is Guy Ritchie, there's P.T. Anderson, Bong Joon-ho, the Coen brothers, Martin Terrence Malick, Martin Scorsese. But, like, those are all auteur directors. Those aren't the people yeah. who are raking in. I mean, there are yeah. some. Like, Tarantino makes well, a good Well, Joss Whedon but. used to be able to do ensemble pieces. Yeah, I would say and Serenity. You, Serenity. Now, Serenity is based off a television show, of course, yeah, Firefly, Firefly, for those crazy uh, I mean, but, yeah. but And I will say that anything based off television or even stage production is going to have a better grip on their kind of ensemble things because you do yeah. have a depth to these characters. But Serenity by itself, and it can't like, be watched television by Television by necessity all, almost yeah. all has to be an ensemble like, piece. Even or... though River is the reason they do all the things in the movie, that entire... Everything about Serenity requires every single one of those characters. Yeah, no, and, and, like, River is, like, nothing is ever 
focused on River, even though most yeah. of the story is And all about these important her. parts um, of River all come from her interaction with every single one of them. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I would not call River the main protagonist for that movie, nor would I call her brother that. I would say that they are all in it together and they try their best to finish it together, damn it. But they don't but make it. <laughs> but he stopped doing that when he started breaking in that mad. Star Trek you know, money? The Star, Star, money. Star Wars Black. money? Yeah. No, what what did what what's the big thing that he did do? It's not Star Wars. That's Jim. He did Abrams did Star Wars and Star, Star Trek. Trek. Oh. Yeah. No, what, what am I thinking? Of? But well, he did. I mean, before he did all these amazing television shit. He did. Yeah, Angel. Buffy, and he did or, Angel, and he did Firefly. Uh, fucking Buffy. Alias. God, um, alias. Uh, he did Cabin in the Woods. That's one of the movies that I was thinking. Cabin, Cabin in else. the Woods. Oh, now he that's helped, an ensemble. He helped write piece. a lot of the Toy Story movies. Yeah. Did he? Yeah. I don't know if I could necessarily call Toy Story ensemble pieces. No, but no, Cabin definitely in the Woods? not the first one. I would say Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods, definitely. Cabin in the Woods, I, Cabin Cabin in the Woods, Woods by definition, great. has to be because yeah. the meta part of Cabin in the Woods is the fact that it requires each of those specific tropes. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a commentary on ensemble pieces, <laughs> especially ensemble horror. Yeah. yeah. Which, of course, is well, another genre. Well, there's also genre. like Scream is another Scream. one that's kind of. The Faculty? y'all ever seen that? I have seen the faculty. I have seen the faculty. Yeah. The faculty is fucking dope. And yeah. it is most definitely an ensemble piece. Yeah. And God, I wish I could use weed to stop monsters in every occasion. <laughs> because using drugs to fight the monsters is like a favorite of Josh Whedon's fucking, like, major platforms. Sorry, spoilers yeah. for those of you who haven't seen the faculty. But, <laughs> but the faculty's great. The faculty's um, great. The faculty's a very underrated kind of yeah. horror movie. And it's, you should watch it. It's a good time. Okay. Those, um, those of us probably really following the Weenverse probably already seen the Weenverse. The Weenverse. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, do you have anything further to say about ensemble pieces? I love them. I, I wish love there were them more too. of them, and I wish they weren't as dead in our writing today. Though, thank you, Tarantino and Anderson and all those other names. And all the Andersons. Um. Yes. <laughs> that, that help us keep it alive today. Yeah. I would be sad if we lost them. They are yeah. they are special to because me. They, I do yeah. love ensemble casts. And they gotta be more fun to just do. To they just direct yeah. and write no. and act in. They have to all be I mean stuff like this is the end and you know yeah, the no. end is absolutely yeah, an ensemble. Like piece. have to be they have to be Clue had to be so much fun, you know, like and you can tell, you can tell these people enjoy are, are like sharing this equal happy. time and, and are happy you know, to do it and have more freedom yeah. to bounce off of each other. And I feel like you can feel that when you watch the movie, and that's why they're so great, and I really hope they're still around and hanging out and being great within my lifetime. After I'm dead, they can do whatever they want. <laughs> but I want to be able to watch them, because it is one of my favorite genres of movie ever. Yeah. All yeah, right. They're great. Well, if we're wrapping up, then uh, I guess that is the end of episode three of What You Should Be Watching. Mm-hmm. Two weeks from now, we'll be airing episode four. We'll be foc- our main topic will be the filmography of director Sofia Coppola. We'll talk about what she's been doing, how she's evolved as a filmmaker, and what we love about her. What we love yeah. about her. Yeah, we do love her. Um, so until then, go watch the movies. All right. Later, y'all. Bye, guys. <laughs>